countdown for blastoff. X minus five, minus four, minus three, minus two, X minus one, fire! For over 60 years, Mr. Kazadizus, or Kaz as he's better known, has been publishing fanzines, and now online fanzines, on science fiction and pulp magazine stories and authors of the 19th and 20th century. The seminal fanzine, Herbdom, was launched by Kaz in 1960. Focused on Edgar Rice Burroughs' fandom, hence the name, this publication was twice nominated for Hugo Award for Best Fanzine, winning the Hugo Award in 1966. Today, Herbdom continues its legacy under the name Pulpdom, still under the stewardship of Kaz. Welcome to the program today, Mr. Kazadizus. It's a pleasure to have you with us. How are you? Thank you. It's a pleasure. So, what got you started? Uh, well, actually, when I, I, I started Herbdom with a young, another young man in Louisiana named Al Guillory, yeah. who lived in a little town in southern Louisiana. And back in the 1959, somewhere through a, probably a book dealer in buying Edgar Rice Burroughs' books from my collection, I heard about a man in England who published a magazine called Urbania. Urbania, yeah. So I wrote him a letter and said I wanted to subscribe, and he immediately wrote me back and said, well, that would be great, and here's the first issue. And lo and behold, I looked at the magazine that he sent me, and his assistant editor in the United States of America was a guy that lived in a little town about 40 miles away from where I lived in Baton Rouge. So of all the 50 states, he lived just 50 miles away. So Isn't that I crazy? I just said, what an incredible coincidence. So I got on the telephone or something. I got in my car and drove over there and introduced myself to this young man. And, of course, he was about as surprised as I was. Yeah. And uh, he was a, a Cajun uh, a descendant of the Canadian of the Canadian Cajun people who came down here in the uh, uh, what 1800s. Yeah. And uh, so he he and I decided that well this was ridiculous. Well, what was a British guy named Pete Ogden publishing a magazine about an American author named Edgar Rice Burroughs? Why didn't we publish a magazine? <laughs> so that's kind of what we did, and I think he actually came up with the name Herb Dumb. Yeah. And so we. Uh, of course, we struggled with how and what are we going to say, what are we going to write about. You know, we were just new collectors and new fans, and it took us about eight or nine months to finally get the first issue of Urban Them Out uh, in May of 1960. So it was really a cooperative effort in, those, in that first issue. And uh, we did a second issue, and then tragically, he was killed in a car wreck in his hometown. That's horrible. Yeah, I read it. It was a car-train collision. Is that right? Yes. That's horrible. Yes. And, uh, of course, I was just shocked and devastated, But uh, and I was in college at the time. I was about, I was going to Spring Hill College, and um, so I kind of realized that, well, it's, it's up to me now to uh, put the next issue out, and so I put the next issue out, number three, all by myself, and uh, then it came time to put out number four, and by this time we probably had maybe 25 or 30 subscribers. And, of course, the first issue was mailed out free, and we asked for people to send us money to subscribe, and a few did, and then a few more did, and so that's kind of how it got started. That's how it got started. Now, the first issue, you you drew the cover for that. I think the no, first I, couple of issues, I, did no, you? No, I, I think... 
I think that was Al Guillory that drew that. I mean, he and I worked on it a little bit. But oh, okay. We're working just... on a mimeograph machine. Yeah. So the mimeograph paper is hard to draw artwork. You couldn't scan any artwork in there at that time. Well, maybe you could, but we didn't know how to do that. Yeah. So uh, it, it was it was sort of a well, whatever we can do to put some kind of drawing on the sure. front cover. Oh, okay. Well, you know, looking at it, it's clearly hand drawn. I, I see your your signature on it, and, I, and also you can see that it's mimeographed too. And I mean, this is 1960 we're talking about now, and so everything you had to do, you had to do. I mean, now you can do anything on a computer in under 10 minutes. Um, yeah. How did you get all the resources together to begin? Well, that was what was so hard. Like I said, it took us about eight months. Yeah. We didn't know what to say. We didn't have money, anything really in mind, except that it would be eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper stapled together on the side. And yeah. we just, uh, you know, he had his ideas and I had mine, and we just sort of combined efforts. And uh, the first issue was actually published in a Catholic church, and we uh -huh. used their mimeograph machine. And then how did you... What, how did you get it out then? I mean, how did you spread word or make people aware of it? Well, when we when I had contacted the the book dealers here in America and started buying Edgar Rice Burroughs books, uh, these book dealers were uh, willing and helpful, and they said, well, you know, I know two or three people that collect these books, and they would give me an address. And then once you have one or two addresses, you know, he's got a friend, and then that friend has a friend, and it just sort of grassroots expands into a a group of about a hundred people who were serious Burroughs fans and who wanted uh, more information about Edgar Rice Burroughs because mm -hmm. there was there just was a lack of information and we filled that that notch and you filled that notch that's right well when Mr. Gullery died then that must have been a shock and was there was there any thought of stopping at that point or or did you know you'd carry on? Well, I guess I had probably caught the bug by that time. I mean, it was fun. People were writing you letters back and say, oh, that's so great. When's the next issue? And, you know, if you get a little encouragement, if you, no matter what you're doing, if you're getting some encouragement from people, it's, uh, it's like, well, okay, I'm going to do something. And so uh, that's kind of what happened. We just, I, I just decided, well, I'm going to do one more issue. And then, then you do one more and you say, well, I might as well do another one. And, by this time, it, it's become a hobby. Yeah, I it's see. Uh, well, now, by about issue six or seven, you know, one thing that, that I observed is that the uh, the editorial content was consistent and the, the artistic content was consistent, but the, the quality of the publications seemed to rise uh, exponentially after about issue six or seven. And when I look at, at the back catalog index, I started to notice lots of maybe not as well-known names now, but many artists' names attached to it. So I'm thinking, um, I think uh, Al Williamson, I saw his name mentioned in one. Um, Roy Krenkel, I mean, the, color, the covers too. Uh, Jeffrey Jones, I think there's a GM Farley. And these are all artists that were, well, they're in that sort of Bern Hogarth, Frank Frazetta school. How did how did you obtain their artwork back in in that time? Well, they time? were Burroughs fans. Yeah, they were Edgar Rice Burroughs fans, and they liked that. Uh, they liked the idea of Tarzan and John Carter, and so they were sitting around their mm -hmm. house and pursuing their hobbies because some of them were professionals, but some were yeah. 
you know, wanting to be more professional and, you know, sell their artwork. And so they always had an extra sketch or an extra drawing. And uh, I think they really appreciated what what uh, I was doing because uh, there wasn't anybody else in America that was uh, pursuing it quite the way I was. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it just, uh, they, they they voluntarily would send you a drawing or, and I, I don't think they would send you a Xerox of a drawing because the Xeroxing was not too well known back then. No. So, and, you know, I, of course, thought the artwork was wonderful, and that was exactly what we needed because I'm an artist. I'm not an artist. I'm more of an editor and a text person. Yeah. So it just, it all kind of began to gel. It just became more and more fascinating and more and more interesting. And after about a year or two, it was like, man, this is this is great fun. Why, mm-hmm. this, is a, this is a great hobby. And, and um, I also think it kind of kept me off the streets, shall I, shall I say. Uh, instead of getting in my car and driving around and and doing too much drinking and chasing girls and partying, uh, it, I could stay home in in my office and my well, which became an office, and and find a great deal of satisfaction, and uh, and so it it just became uh, it became a, a very interesting and uh, fun thing for me to do, and mm-hmm. I enjoyed every minute of it. It never was a it was a labor of love. A labor of love, and so your your parents didn't have to worry about you then because they knew you were in the office. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's great. And I was an only child, and I lived way out in the country. Yeah, and so uh, it just fit. And I was an outdoor person. I had spent a lot of my time in the woods. My dad was a hunter. I was familiar with guns and swords, and uh, you know the whole idea of um, what John Carter was doing and what yeah. Tarzan was doing was uh, right down my alley. I would, you know, that was that was just great stuff. And of course, Burroughs had such a broad subject matter that he wrote about, you know, Mars and Venus and jungles and the Indian stories and the lost continent stories with prehistoric monsters and people on the moon. It was just it was a whole world yeah. of of uh, subject matter that Burroughs covered, which was, I thought, pretty different from most of the other writers who were either stuck in writing pure science fiction or pure adventure stories or, say, like Doc Savage and the Spider instead of just detective stuff, which we were not particularly interested in. Burroughs was not really much of a detective person in his early days. So it fit with my lifestyle, and it was a lot of fun. Still is. Yeah. Well, how old were you at that time? They're around 19, 20 years old? I was born in 1938, so if Urban started in 1960, there you have it. There you have it. So it, tell, me, uh, tell me about your, your folks. Were they supportive of this direction you were taking? Did they want oh, you to yes. buckle down and study or oh, do something else? Oh, yes. I think my father gave me my first Tarzan book and said, you know, you really need to read this. And I said, well, I'm not sure I want to read anything like that. So he sat down and read me make maybe the first chapter or two, and I said, oh, boy, I like that story, so I started <laughs> reading it. And uh, that's kind of how it happened. Oh, I know another one, too. I went down to the East Baton Rouge Parish Library yeah. with my dad, and my dad said, have you got any Edgar Rice Burroughs books? And they said, unquote, we don't have that kind of stuff in this library. I know. That and was so, the attitude, and you know, still is today in some circles. And so He was had, insulted. Yeah, he was insulted. I was depressed, and so that forced me to go look for the rest of the books. And, you know, there were 50 or 60 books in print by then, but they were all in hardcover and it had, you know, was sort of out of date, and they were all used books. So it it took some digging to find the books. And then, of course, you wanted to get the books in the best condition that you could get them in. And 
with the most illustrations and yeah so it i became a major collector of edgar rice burroughs and not just uh, editor writing about him mm-hmm. well so how old were you when you met tarzan then through your dad Oh, I was probably 18, 17. Oh, okay. So so pretty grown up. Yeah, so, sort of. Yeah. You know, I've, try, I've tried to turn my, my son on to books, and he's nine. And it's usually, I think the reaction is, oh, if my dad's given it to me, I'm not so sure about that. So I try to turn him on, of course, to Tarzan and J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. A lot of resistance, like you described. Um, but after I get to the first chapter, he's usually hooked, and I'm, I'm given permission to carry on. So now you're going to school and you're doing this. Was there a point where, you, was there a point where you saw the revenues increase? Where you thought maybe I could do this? What was your plan when when that started to happen? Oh, no, no, it was it was there was never any financial uh, interest. It was purely no. There was there's no idea of making money, no idea of becoming famous, no idea of anything except uh, a responsibility that I felt towards my subscribers, mm-hmm. and of course I knew each one of them by name because I hand-addressed all the envelopes. I, I almost had their addresses memorized, <laughs> and uh, so there was very little personal contact with those people until I realized uh, that the science fiction community had a annual science fiction, world science fiction convention every year. And uh, the one I remember going to was in Chicago. I got on a train in New Orleans and rode up to Chicago, and here was several, you know, several hundred people, maybe a thousand, who were all interested in science fiction and books and comic books and movies. And of course, there wasn't too much back in 1960, and uh, it just became. Uh, it was like, oh boy, this is fun. This is, uh, and it just it grew from from that. So I started going to the conventions, and I would sell my extra books and buy the books that I wanted to buy. And, you know, quickly you pick up a group of people, say 100 or so, that, uh, you know, like what you do and are interested in the same subjects. And so, there was, you know, there was no information. There was very little information. And uh, it, it just it became, a, became a hobby that became a full-time hobby and became just overwhelming in many ways. Now, when you were first nominated for Hugo, I, I think that was 1964. And how? Tell me about that. How did you hear about that? How do you feel? Well, when I went to the to the uh, science fiction convention, there was a category. Well, they they awarded uh, a Hugo to the best novel and the best short story, and you know the best uh, serial or, or maybe the best artwork and so it it just you know then the best amateur magazine they didn't call it a fanzine they called mm-hmm. it an amateur magazine and uh, th- there was not much competition I mean and I was doing it and had kind of gotten my foot in the door pretty early the there was the other fanzine that was was very interesting was called Amra which is a uh, a amateur magazine about Conan the Barbarian he was in a sense uh, the the others the other uh, side of the Edgar Rice Burroughs because Conan was the, the barbarian with the big sword and Burroughs didn't really write <clears throat> barbarian swords with big swords. John Carter was the southern gentleman with the, with the French sword, so a little bit on the different side. Well, that's true. 
Yeah, I mean, Edgar Rice Burroughs' characters were much more refined, weren't they? Yes. And, well, uh, you know, and Tarzan spoke French and English and uh, he was the Lord. language of the apes, and so he, he was, you know, Conan didn't do anything like that. No, they traveled in different circles. Yes. <laughs> so you were nominated in 64 and then again in 66 when you won. And I mean, now uh, the Hugo Awards, they're universally recognized as a big deal. Did the Hugo Awards, they were pretty nascent and starting out then. Um, how was it? I mean, Isaac Asimov, I think, was the keynote speaker the year you won. Yes, um, I, just being just, next to him would blow my mind. It, it did. It just thrilled me to no end. And, of course, um, you know, I had read some of his stuff, and he was quite prolific. And, and uh, I, I don't think I realized how really, what a superman he really was. And it was uh, after he handed me my Hugo, and uh, I just sort of said, you know, this guy's just really good. And so I started reading his history books and his uh, science books. And I think, I think Edgar Rice Burroughs got me interested in archaeology and ancient history. And, uh, in fact, I even went through a period of time where I called Tarzan an archaeologist because Tarzan would go out and discover these lost cities in Africa and one would be Roman, and another one would be uh, Phoenician, and another one would be from the Middle Ages. And so uh, this, the whole world of the past worldwide became, uh, you know, I want to know more about that. Is, is what Edgar Rice Burroughs saying correct, or is this just he's making all this up, or what? So my interest in history began to start right, right there, right away. Right there. And that's what you studied at, at college, I believe, wasn't it? Yep, American I, Southwest I, history. Yeah, I basically have a master's in history now, and I think it's because of Burroughs. And what a great pleasure it was to hear Jane Goodall say that she went to Africa to study apes because of what Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote. I heard it from her own lips, and think of the contribution that she has made to the world about chimpanzees and and uh, primates. And she said that Edgar Rice Burroughs was the main impetus to get her interested in that. And she also said that Burroughs' description of how the apes interacted with Tarzan and with other uh, densons of the jungle, that was uh, true. And nobody thought that Burroughs, and Burroughs just dreamed this up. Mm -hmm. And he was right. So that's just incredible. <laughs> I only heard that last year. Well, you know, and Burroughs had such a wide range, too. I mean, I've, uh, I'm just taking a look at the books I've got, and, and I've only got a fraction of your knowledge, but, you know, even detective novels. What was that one? The Oakdale Affair, when he was experimenting at the beginning. Yes. And, and then going on, well, Tarzan and, and the John Carter series, and thank heavens for them. And then moving on through the Pellucer books and Carson of Venus and everything else. Um, was there one that, but, you know, tell me about the, the range in, of Burroughs' work you know, and the appeal that it has to you. Was it primarily oh, Tarzan well, that grabbed you, or was it the whole catalog? No, it was the whole thing. I mean, Tarzan was great and wonderful, but, boy, once you started reading John Carter, it was pretty hard. John Carter was just something something really special about he and Dacia Thoris and uh, Mars and the whole aspect of uh, the alien civilization uh, of intelligent people you know, like the Martians, and so it it just it my it just expanded my mind. And of course, science fiction. I'm with hand in hand with science fiction now. 
Oh, and I must also say this: there was a a, um, a radio program called X minus one. Yeah. And X minus one, somebody would read a short story from Galaxy Magazine, and uh, you could listen to the Green Hornet, and you could listen to uh, other radio heroes whom I've forgotten. And uh, Shadow probably. That just was more. That was more. It, it was. It suddenly became. You couldn't get enough of it. I remember the first story that I heard, or maybe the most important story I ever heard on the radio, was Robert Sheckley's story called Watchbird. And guess what a watchbird is? It's a drone. <laughs> no kidding. And the story that he wrote, Watchbird, is that the the government makes a bird to fly around and take care of bad guys, but then that that bird, that watchbird, that drone gets out of hand and starts killing people indiscriminately, so they have to make another drone to go around and kill the first drone. And think about how prophetic that is, because that's Robert Sheckley. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how how art has a way of becoming reality. Well, that you know, every cell phone, every flip cell phone that's ever been created is based on Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, the Motorola Star Trek was essentially yep. a tricorder right there. Yep. The guy admitted it. He said, "I was trying to figure out what to do with a cell phone," and he said, "I thought back to Star Trek with a little flip." And he said, "That's what I'm going to do," and that's what he did. Well, you know, after you won that Hugo. Did anything change? Did your prospects or, or plans for the magazine evolve or, or change direction? Or did you change? Tell me about that. I kind of wanted to make it better and better. I, yeah. I was becoming, well, I had graduated from college and I had gotten married and it, I wanted it to, you know, I was more of an adult and so the, the magazine itself became a little bit more adult and uh, the people who wanted to write articles were happy to do so, and of course I met one of the most famous authors of today, Mike Resnick, mm-hmm. and Mike Resnick started writing articles from me, and of course you know Mike Resnick now is a multiple Hugo winner mm-hmm. out of Chicago, and what, I guess what's kind of interesting is that I only knew these people through the mail. I never really met too many of them in person. I, I did a few when they went to the science fiction conventions, but it was primarily a mail order uh, hobby. So when the mail came every day, uh, it was always a pleasure to have some letter or some article or some piece of artwork, and uh, it finally became got to the point where there was people were sending me far more than I could publish. Mm. During all this, um, you had a day job then, and you had uh, to go to work every day as well. How yeah. did you manage your time? Oh, that was easy. Just it's around a hobby. Clock. Yeah, it's a hobby. You work Monday through Friday, and and then you really go to work at night and on the weekends because I was working much harder at my magazine than I was. I was working <laughs> in the bank. I was a bank teller. Oh, okay, yeah. <clears throat> now, during all this, well, you know, let's go back to your family just for a sec. Your dad, he was an engineer. Is that right? What, what yes, type? he was a civil engineer. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you what type. And your mom? Uh, she was a homemaker and a garden person, and she was a bird watcher and uh, an artist. Mm-hmm. And they must have been very, well, amazed and proud to see this grow into the Hugo Award-winning undertaking that it was. Oh, I don't think they quite uh, realized the the significance of that. They, no. You know, science fiction, fandom, and so on was was not particularly something that, I mean, I think they would probably would have preferred it much better if I had been 
well, I don't know what they would have preferred, but you know, I was happy and content, and I wasn't. Mm-hmm. I was at home a lot because I was <laughs> in my office reading books or writing about them, and so on. That's good. But they're supportive. Oh, sure. Oh, that's great. Well, <clears throat> then after that, um, your interests seem to broaden. You know, after herbdom, then there's uh, I think there was fantasy, fantastic, and now pulpdom, and and your website is well. Yes. Yeah. Well, kind of what happened was in the the boroughs, the herbdom fanzine was uh, was doing okay, yeah. and uh, we probably I think the maximum number of subscribers I ever had was twelve hundred, and uh, people wanted to buy and sell their extra books, science fiction or boroughs or whatever. So it became very obvious to make an advertising uh, section, and uh, there was a man named George Bibby who was. Uh, publishing a magazine called a fantasy collector and it was yeah. all advertising and uh he wanted to stop doing it and so i said i'll take it over and i did it so um i i started publishing the fantasy collector which was really a book collector's magazine mm-hmm. and for a while that was uh that was practically the only place that you could really buy and sell and advertise your books or your art folios or your you know your extra movie stills or movie posters, and of course the, there was not much in the way of science fiction movies, and uh, so it was it was a very really good idea. And for about three years, we were we were doing great mm-hmm. with uh, with the advertising. And so there was a little money, a little extra money for that, but all the money went right back into publishing. Herbdom, and you know, when you graduate from a black and white magazine to a color magazine, the expense of production goes up highly. Oh, I imagine. And then, fantasy became fantastic collector. There was a name change. Uh, well, I stopped publishing Herbdom in uh, 1976, and I took a little break in things. I was still very interested in publishing, but uh, I just I had other things to do, and I just said mm-hmm. I've got to stop for a while, and it was just too. Too much of a break, and then in 19 uh, was it 89? I went New Orleans had the World Science Fiction Convention, and it was being run by one of my old subscribers, John Gidry, who's still around down there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he invited me to the convention and said, "You'll be a free guest. You can just come walk around." Well, when I got down there, I realized that you know I ought to do this again. So I started up Fantasy Collector. And it was uh, really a broad, uh, it was advertising and some articles, and we published some very rare books, some very rare serials, which had never been reprinted. And uh, I took advertising. It was mostly advertising, but after a while, the advertising began to sort of fall off. But the editorial content about reprinting articles and so on began to grow. And so pretty soon, Fantasy Collective was almost all about science fiction and pulps. Mm-hmm. And uh, then along the way, I said, "Well, you know, I, I want to, fantasy is not quite the word I want to use. I want to use fantastic." So I changed the name to Fantastic Collector. And then I realized that, you know, this is mostly about pulp magazines, and the whole idea of pulp magazines was a growing uh, was a, a, a growing uh, area where people were very interested. And I said, "You know what? I know the name. We should name it Pulpdom." So uh, I changed the name to Pulpdom, and then I realized that, well, Pulpdom is the son of Herbdom, and so that's the way it is now. <laughs> so your your website, tell us your website's address, please. 
It's pulpdom.com. Okay, P-U-L-P-D-O-M.com. Yeah, pulpdom.com. And it's, it's up and operating right now. And uh, you can uh, read a little bit about uh, science, what I, you know, a sort of a history of science fiction. There's a, a list of all of the issues that I've published, and uh, there's an index to all of the articles that Pulpdom has published over the years. And then last year, I realized that printing things on pieces of paper was more expensive and time-consuming and tedious, and that why not just go to uh, the Internet almost exclusively. Mm -hmm. And so now, when you subscribe to Pulpdom, the only way to get it is as an email attachment. Okay, and then uh, one can order back issues as well. Well, yes. yes, you can, but they still come as a PDF file. On, a, oh, on a, I can send it to you as an email attachment, but, you know, if you've got 50 back issues, well, I have 80, I have 75 back issues, 74 mm -hmm. back issues, and so I can take all 74 issues and uh, copy them to a disk and mail it to you. Okay. Well, the focus of Pulpdom, then, is is really the whole pulp genre. So yes. maybe yes. tell us a bit about that, you know, for... For me, when I think about pulps, I think about the old R.E.P.C. magazine and and all the serialized, uh, the pulp magazines where all the serialized stories were in. So, of course, Tarzan first appeared in a pulp magazine. Was that the well, R.E.P.C.? Uh, yes. Uh, I, the history of pulp magazines is very fascinating. Uh, Frank A. Muncy published the first pulp magazine about 1896, and the, the distinguishing feature of a of what we traditionally call a pulp magazine is it has to be all fiction. Mm -hmm. We don't want any articles about World War One, and we don't want any articles about uh, the Borneo natives. We want it to be all just fiction stories, and that's what he started in uh, October of 1896. And of course, this is where Edgar Rice Burroughs first started writing his. When he wrote a story, he sent it to a pulp magazine, and they would serialize it, and then it would become out as a book. So he wasn't writing directly for books; he was writing for pulp magazines. And he was just the, he was a major uh, source of uh, the sales of Argosy and All Story back in the teens because uh, people just loved to read his stuff. And he, in a sense, almost carried All Story and Argosy by the, by the uh, virtue of his strength of writing Tarzan and John Carter and the Indian stories and the other stuff. So... And, but, of course, the pulp magazines began to expand, and by the early 1930s, um, somebody thought up the idea of uh, Doc Savage, and then a, a guy said, well, let's do something like Doc Savage, and they invented the spider, and they would write to they'd get some writer to turn out a Doc Savage story every month, a spider story every month, and then uh, Hugo Gernsback started... Uh, publishing a magazine called Amazing Stories, which was like all science fiction. And suddenly the pulp magazine industry, which is basically popular fiction, just grew exponentially. And by the 20s and 30s, there were like 100, 100 or 200 different pulp magazines, detective stories, love stories, Indian stories, um, jungle stories. And uh, so all the different worlds that Edgar Rice Burroughs had talked about and wrote about in the teens now uh, became individual pulp magazines. I mean, Frontier Stories and Wild West Weekly. Burroughs wrote several westerns. Uh, so it, and suddenly 
the the pulp magazine business was just huge. I don't think I think every single book story that Edgar Rice Burroughs ever wrote was first published in a pulp magazine. So it it just my whole world expanded beyond Burroughs and in his limited well not really limited his his area uh, into all the pulp magazines and I wanted to investigate all of them. I wanted to know why Edgar Rice Burroughs' stories seemed to be the ones that were the most fun and lasted the longest and and seemed to be the most popular. So I was determined and fascinated to to write about and to investigate all the other authors that were Burroughs' competition back in those days. And so in a sense, that's what Pulpton became mm-hmm. and so, still is. So give us a sense of, of who some other major, say, science fiction or fantasy authors were who began in the Pulps. Well, um, I guess H. Bedford Jones would be um, a person that was, uh, he usually wrote historical stories mm-hmm. uh, about uh, D'Artagnan. And uh, um, so I'd say that he was certainly one of the big ones. And then um, a man named Abraham Merritt wrote these wonderful stories about lost lands and lost cities. And that became kind of a lost race genre. And of course, when when Tarzan goes into the jungle and finds a a group of of uh, Roman soldiers that have been living in some little town for uh, for hundreds of years, that's a lost race. So the whole idea of lost race stories became, and uh, for that you go to Talbot Mundy, and uh, so you've definitely got uh, uh, this broad area of uh, of. Viking Viking stories. Uh, you have people like Fenton Ash who wrote uh, stories of of, of lost uh, worlds and of giant squids out in the in the in the sea. And uh, oh, you have uh, who are the other big ones I can think of right now? Uh, Ray Cummings who wrote stories about miniaturization. You know, people, little tiny people, and then you had people like J. Allen Dunn, who wrote about lost tribes in Central and South America. Uh, you have guys like Homer Eon Flint, who who wrote stories about uh, spaceships that, uh, well, a, a world, a, the, the future world, everybody's starving to death, so they put a lot of people on a, on a spaceship and go out and visit Jupiter, and then they decide they're going to take a planet and put it in circulation in, in orbit around Jupiter and grow food on it. And, it, you know, science fiction just becomes, uh, well, I mean, you know, science fiction is, is almost, you know, you can do anything, time travel. And so the world is completely wide open once you realize the the extension of science fiction. And, I mean, I know the detective stories are there and Doc Savage and Spider, but I was never never much of a detective story and never did read a lot of Doc Savage or Spider, although they became extremely popular. Well, another major one would be Amazing Stories, I guess, would be among that group of pulps, would yes. they not? You know, and yeah, then really. Isaac Asimov, I think Ursula yeah. Le Guin. But the Asimov doesn't, all... Asimov doesn't really get started until about 1940. So you've got 20, you've got all the teens, <clears throat> all the 20s, and all the 30s. You've got 30 or 40 years before really serious, hard science fiction gets started. And of course with you get somebody like like uh 
John Campbell who started Analog are astounding. Yeah. And uh, that's that's like pure science fiction. In other words, you can't. There's no fantasy stories. Fantasy is made up stuff. Science mm-hmm. fiction has to be rooted in a scientific possibility. Mm-hmm. And so, it, and Burroughs, Burroughs was never really a science fiction writer in the pure sense like Asimov and and other people were. But he he, he was sort of a crossover in a way. Uh, Soldiers of Fortune is another uh, fanzine. Uh, the Foreign Legion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was thinking about the the roots of of pulpdom and and pulp fiction, and <clears throat> I've got a an old copy of Chums. Do you remember the Chums books that were published mm-hmm. in the twenties? Yes, mm-hmm. my grandfather gave me one of these, and before that was Boy's Own. And so I was thinking to myself, well, they've got a lot in common with the pulps, but I think you touched on something, that the pulps were all fiction. They weren't the the uh, the non-fiction stories, you know, yes. Thought of the Antarctic yes. and things like that. Um, so that, I wonder if that may have been an offshoot, perhaps, or a popularized version of, of those larger books. So where do you think it all began from? Because on, on Pulp Time, I was reading your article on, on the roots of it, and uh, there's stories. I mean, H.G. Wells, uh, Haggard, H. Ryder Haggard, H. H. Ryder Haggard. In fact, Haggard would be a really good contemporary shoulder-to-shoulder person with Burroughs. But he was writing a little bit. He wrote his stuff just a little bit before Burroughs. But King yeah. Solomon's Mines and and all of his books are similar to what Burroughs uh, just. He just kind of repackaged it and made mm-hmm. it a bit more heroic. Uh, and of course, Burroughs' writing style was just, even to this day, he, there are people who just say, man, this guy could tell a story. I mean, let's face it, you know, there's some actors who can really play the part, and you forget that you're watching an actor, you think you're really watching a real story. But that's because the actor is really performing it really well, and the, the text, the, the dialogue is wonderful, and Burroughs was just good at that. Yeah, it, it just takes you away. You know, Burroughs was very well educated, so, and he didn't start writing until he was 35, so. He was an older, experienced man, and a lot of the uh, science fiction writers started when they were in their late teens and 20s, and so they didn't quite have the world experience that Burroughs had, although Burroughs never really got out of the States until the war started. Mm-hmm. So Burroughs was his imagination and his ability to to tell a story that was fun and interesting and had morals and uh, that had integrity and that was never a force for evil, uh, this is why he was so successful. You know, for someone just starting out, who, what would be the the top uh, Burroughs books you'd recommend? Tarzan, Princess of Mars, I think would have to be there. Well, um, I've always said that uh, Jungle Tales of Tarzan. Since people know kind of who Tarzan is just by virtue of thinking of an old Johnny Weissmuller movie or some of the new TV stuff. Uh, Jungle Tales of Tarzan is a bunch of short stories, 12 short stories, and each one of those stories is just fascinating in uh, their ability to tell you who Tarzan was. And uh, I mean, one of the great stories is Tarzan is sitting in a tree, and there's an eclipse of the moon, and all the apes gather around and say, Tarzan, Tarzan, look, the moon is being eaten by a dark monster. (laughs) And so Tarzan has no idea what that means. So he has a bow and arrow, so he climbs to the top of a tall, tall tree, and he takes his bow and arrow, and he starts firing arrows at the moon. And, of course, eventually, 
uh, the shadow, the moon comes out from under the shadow, and the apes are just saying, oh, great, Tarzan, you saved us. Now, that's a simple idea, but boy, when Burroughs tells that story, you read that story in Jungle Tales of Tarzan, you are there. You can feel it, and it's just wonderful. It's a it's an uplifting, triumphant feeling that is hard to match. As time went so by. I'd say Jungle... That's yeah. the one to start with, Jungle Tales of Tarzan. If you want, if you don't, don't just know a little bit about Tarzan, and you want to catch up, read that. Okay, and Jungle Tales of Tarzan. Um, what are some? If we move beyond Tarzan and John Carter, you know, I've discovered some books just quite by accident in later years at bookstores that I never knew about. I'm sure everyone else did, but me. Uh, one of them was uh, North of Thirty or Beyond Thirty. Where the Lost Continent? Yeah, Beyond 30. That's a, a great war in Europe. Uh, cuts off uh, Europe from America. And uh, some guys in America decide to go over there and see what's going on. And so that's kind of an adventure. That sort of stems, comes out of World War I. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, after you read, after you know Tarzan, you have to read the first three Mars books. John Carter of Mars, um, Gods of Mars and Warlord of Mars. Those three books make one big long story, and even my wife likes those. Mm, yeah, those are my favorites as well. And then the other books he published posthumously. There is uh, I Am a Barbarian. I think came out after his death. Yes. Well, now there's a case of Burroughs going back to Roman times and trying to write about uh, what it was like when you were a German uh, barbarian and had been captured and brought to, back to Rome as a display. Mm-hmm. And so there's Burroughs sort of showing his interest in, in ancient history, and it is a it's a it's a pretty fascinating book. It, but he wrote it later in his career, and he was a little it's a little less uh, fun, but it's good. Well, and of course, good. it was it was one of the few that few few manuscripts that sat around for years and then was finally published. Well, I was, and he served um, what was his name. Uh, Britannicus. He served under the Mad Emperor Caligula. And when I read yes. that book, and I had read that a couple of years ago, it struck me that that was so different from every other book he wrote. It, it seemed like that was skewed a little bit more toward an adult audience. You know, yes. it's, this may That's, not be the book yes. I read my 10-year-old. Yes. Well, Burroughs became pretty commercial in a way. I mean, once he made a lot of money, you know, Tarzan just made him a million dollars. He wrote Tarzan in 1911. It was yeah. published in 1912 in book form in 1914. By 1918, the first Tarzan movie was underway, and he made a million dollars from that. And he was living in California on a huge ranch, and he was just, he was making money. And new new movies were coming out, and comic strips, and he was getting uh, money for all of the use of the name Tarzan, which he very carefully uh, copyrighted and and made sure that uh, if you use the name Tarzan, you were, you were going to have to pay Edgar Rice Burroughs some money. Good for him. Some people have made the mistake of overlooking that. Yes, and he was one of the first to do and By the way, he was the first person to successfully publish his own books. The first American author to successfully publish his own books. And that's something Mark Train tried and couldn't do. Hmm. So part of it was the time... The times of the middle and early 20th century, it was an era of books and magazines, and uh, you know, movies didn't really get rolling until the late 20s. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, look at the situation now. Books are sort of 
passe unless you've got a Kindle, and that's not really a book. It's not the same, is it? No. No. Well, <clears throat> with the pulps, then, when, when do you feel the pulps began to, well, their sales, I think, started to decline around the 40s, 50s, and and um, the comics and paperbacks started to be on the upswing. Is that fair to uh, say? Well, the, the paperbacks kind of got started just after the war, and what was fun about what the, uh, in my opinion, the paperbacks were called pocketbooks. Yeah. And the beauty of that was you could put it in your pocket. A pulp magazine is too big to put in your pocket. So the the pocketbook idea was a great idea, especially during the soldiers in World War II. They wanted uh, the armed services editions, which were little paperbacks. And so the whole idea of, and they were cheaper to produce and cheaper to buy, and uh, the whole idea of hardcover books sort of began to be pushed aside by the incredible growth of the pocketbook paperback books, is what we call them now. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so in the middle 40s, uh, the paperbacks got started. By the early 50s, the paperbacks are really rolling, and the, all the pulp magazines are beginning to die out. And by the late uh, 50s, they're almost all gone. In fact, we just did a – but the Westerns are still doing great. Everybody's wild about Westerns, Western movies and Western paperbacks. I mean, think about the incredible uh, Westerns that were made in the – in Hollywood in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s. Uh, and I think the last pulp magazine is November 1978, and it's uh, it's a magazine I think called the, the West. Of, gosh, it slips my mind right now, but anyway, I know it's November 1978. Mm -hmm. That's the last pulp magazine. And, and what do you feel has taken its place? What has in, taken its place? Yeah, in today's world, what what would be the the analog of the pulp magazine. Wow. I um you know, there's ten different choices that you can do. Now there's games. Think of look at the games. Uh, I mean they used to just be movies, but now they're games that are visual uh on the internet and uh you know Dungeons and Dragons, look look how that is, has expanded into a vast uh game world People who play games now have never read a book. Well, yeah, they, the games they, seem to come first, yeah. It's oh, true. yeah. So I'd say if, I'd say that the gaming, at, at this particular time, the gaming has become... Uh, well, you know, it, it generates more revenue than the film industry. I mean, that's, yes. And that's, it, there's the answer right there. Well, yeah, there, there you go. That, that's probably it. Now, as a kid, you know, one thing I noticed looking back over your work is that I don't see much focus on comic books. So any, there, there are book people and comic book people. Well, there are, but no, no. I'm a, I'm a been a comic book fan since way back. The first real adventure comic book is uh, Tarzan, 1929. Yeah. Uh, and he starts off with drawn by Hal Foster, and then uh, the next kind of important realistic person we've got is Flash Gordon, mm -hmm. and that's 1936. And yeah. uh, 1937, I think you've got Prince Valiant in the Sunday newspapers, and. Uh, uh, we, uh, all of us Burroughs fans and science fiction fans, have have been comic book fans from the from those from those dates, those years, right there. And uh, and yet, uh, and of course, now look at what the comics have become. They're just entirely. I mean, you could buy comic books in any drugstore all over the world, but now you can only buy comic books in comic book stores. Yeah, I miss that. Or it's a very small rack. It's all direct sales now to the comic book stores. Oh, that's yeah. true. 
you know, many of the artists that contributed to your early Herbzine magazines, um, they were comic book artists as well. Um, one that comes to mind is many of them were allied with uh, EC Comics. Did you follow those at all as a kid? Did they grab you? Yep, yep. We liked the EC Comics. That was really realistic, good stuff. And that, yeah. that's Roy Crinkle. That's Frank Frazetta. Yeah. That's Wally Wood. That's John Severin um, and Hal Foster. Um, those guys uh, just did great stuff. And, of course, Jeff Jones is really one of the great ones. I think I, I may be one of the first people to ever publish Jeff Jones' work. He even Jeff Jones lived in Atlanta, Georgia. And as a young man, he was a subscriber to Urban. And he said, Kaz, I want to come see you. And I said, well, that's great. So he got on a bus in Atlanta, Georgia, and rode all the way to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and spent two or three days at my house just drawing drawings of all kinds of things. And we got to be really good friends, and he moved back to Atlanta and became a famous artist. Hmm. I mean, a really famous artist. Well, when, uh, around the 50s, uh, comic books fell into ill repute. Do you remember Seduction of the Innocent, uh, that Frederick Wortham book, and I think there were Senate investigations into the corruption of minors under the influence of comics. Did any of that affect you at all, or or the no. artists with whom you worked? No, we we thought that was that was just funny. Yeah, that was a joke. That was like it was just a tempest in a teapot. I mean, you know, maybe there was some things that it's kind of like trying to blame blame uh, the terrors and the killings of today on comic books or movies. I, I didn't. Mm. I, I'm not so sure that that really. So no, we didn't. No, I've got no. I've got, I had no sympathy for it, but. But it was a big deal. And, you, you know, it's always something. Then it was comics, and then it was uh, music. Then it was Dungeons & Dragons. Then it was arcade games. Now it's video games. Um, but the the pulp magazines, they were largely wholesome fare, weren't they? I don't think they ever fell under any uh, dark times. They called, well, like comics or, or other media did. Well, uh, I would say that the pulp magazine industry just slowly kind of faded away, mm -hmm. whereas the comic book industry evolved into uh, the, the modern comics that we have today. And let's not discount the effect of uh, Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek in 1966. Mm. Uh, that was a profound leap forward in motion pictures uh, about science fiction. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 1969, we've got 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I think that uh, there was a great, uh, great, it, it just, it, it gave people who were interested in that subject a much broader table from which to uh, choose what they wanted to read. Are you, uh, I beg your pardon, I interrupted you. Well, I, it's, <laughs> you're talking about the culture of the United States of America, and on a very broad sense, uh, mm. you know, we're, I mean, there was Saturday Evening Post and all of that, but this, the, that just wasn't, that wasn't part of, that. We, we don't think about that as popular fiction, although there are those who think that Saturday Evening Post was a good example of popular fiction. Mm. Are you a Star Trek man or a Star Wars Oh, yes. Man? Oh, definitely a Star Trek man. I was I was personal friends with Gene Roddenberry. Uh, you know, I, I got a sense of that because you're one of the I know a few people that use the the word grok in common uh, day uh, language. 
Yeah. And and I, that's the first thing I noticed in in our email correspondence. Well, of course, that's Robert Heinlein who wrote that, and that's not Star Trek. That's uh, Robert Heinlein. Well, because I always recall the phrase "I grok Spock." Yeah, well, that's yeah. a mix. You're mixing <laughs> you're mixing a, a television series with a Robert Heinlein idea called that he he got when he wrote that book about the guy who came back from Mars. Oh, okay. Well, how about films? What are your favorite films? What would you recommend people watch that you enjoy? Oh, man, that's a really tough one. There's so many great movies out there. Um, 2001, top of my list. Yeah, 2001 and 2010, the, the sequel that they made. Um, I like The Legend of... Uh, Grace Stoke, The Legend of Tarzan. I thought that you, was a pretty darn good uh, version, uh, although they kind of screwed up the end of it. Well, they did. Um, they did, but, you know, that that was my favorite as well. And, and you know, about a year from that, the Bo Derek one came out. Yes. And I just couldn't reconcile that in my brain. Yeah, I like yeah. Bo Derek, but not in the Tarzan context. Well, but, Hollywood has a way of, of taking a really good story and screwing around with it and making it maybe popular to the certain group of people, but uh, it doesn't have that, uh, doesn't have that interesting, uh, fascinating sort of story and too much... Too much flesh with Bo Derek or whoever that was that played in that movie. <laughs> you know, we know it. But he from but, 10, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, Grace took Lord of Tarzan. That was terrific. Uh, I forget who starred in that, but he doesn't get... I thought he deserved to get a lot more work than he, he got. He deserved... That was a good film. I mean, I like the Star Trek movies. Uh, pretty much, I like them. Uh, I like... The Next Generation was great. Uh, I... Deep Space Nine was just good stuff, and I even finally got to where I liked uh, Stargate Atlantis. Yeah, that's uh, the only one I didn't pick up. There are so many uh, spin-offs at a certain point. Uh, well, I, I, I'm trying to think of some of the, the more lost race jungle-type stories that they've made movies out of, but I can't think of one right now. I'm, but they're, they're there, but there's just not many. No, fair enough. Um, <clears throat> moving on now, uh, you've done a lot of uh, what at college you studied uh, uh, Western culture, Western history, Southwest history. Tell me what you majored in. Well, my first major was my first major was in sociology. Yeah, and I didn't do too well in history. But when when I went back to school, college in the 1970s, I concentrated heavily on history and just became a dedicated historian, and uh, right now, uh, I'm just so, I actually taught Western Civilization at a little college here in Colorado, and I've really, really found a great deal of satisfaction in in studying uh, world history, American history, frontier history. Uh, I've published a couple of books about the mountain men, mm-hmm. who were the early explorers in the far west, uh, Kit Carson, who was uh, a famous mountain man. Uh, and uh, so that's been uh, that's been my interest lately has been more towards uh, history and less towards uh, science fiction and fantastic stories. Although they're still there, and right here in my little town of Pagosa, yep. there's a guy named Doug Roberts who has written four or five science fiction stories, and I'm reading one now, and it's it's a fun read. So there's yeah. just a whole there's ten times as many things available now to read than there were 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. 
Well, there's more to read than there is time. It's so yes. hard to, to narrow it down. And and, 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 it's, and, it, and if you don't know where to start, you, it's hard to know what to start with. You can pick up a science fiction book, and it says science fiction on the front cover, but you read it, and it might be pretty lousy. But if you're familiar with Asimov and Arthur Clarke and Robert Heinlein and Phil Farmer, you might find yourself, oh, well, this is really good. Yeah, so Phil Jose Farmer, I loved it, him it, as well. It, it, takes the, it, it takes a good writer to make it really work. Mm. Brian Alvin at least as well. Yeah. Now you re- you ran a publishing company as well, Opar Press. Is that right? Yeah, but Did that's that's a little minor home. That's a home thing. We never did anything except publish a Frank Rosetta folio and a Rosetta Nick Burian folio and mm-hmm. a few other little publications. But uh, that's just that's sort of a home based production. This, there was never any. Uh, nationwide effort to, uh, you know, I mean, uh, we, we're just small-time people. Well, me, but, just me. I did it. Well, anybody else? But you did it. That's the main thing. And more recently, you've written books on Kit Carson. I think yes. old Pergosa views from the past. Uh, yes. John Real Kit Carson. Tell me a bit about Kit Carson. And what is it that that if, that grabs you about Kit Carson? He harks back to the well, he um, he was a, he was a little guy. He was about five foot four, and he came out uh, to New Mexico in uh, 1826, and uh, he started uh, hanging out with the mountain men. And the mountain men were catching beavers all over the western states: uh, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Washington State, Oregon, California, Arizona. And so he traveled all over those areas by mule and by horseback. And they had interactions with the Indians, but the Indians weren't weren't as hostile to the to a, a band of ten or fifteen mountain men uh, as they became when it was uh, thirty thousand or forty thousand people that came to Colorado to look for gold in the 1850s. So at first the Indians were uh, accepting of the of the white man as he in, entered the West, but uh, with the huge numbers of pilgrims and well, pilgrims the wrong word. Uh, settlers. Settlers, yeah. Uh, you know, then they began to lose their land, and of course, uh, uh, one of the interesting things about Kit Carson is he wrote a letter to the government in 1852, and he said uh, the United States government's going to have to do something about the Indians out here because the white man has killed almost all the animals that the Indians used to live on. Well, now think about that a minute, Greg. Mm-hmm. That's 1852. So in 1852, even Kit Carson recognized that the huge numbers of wild deer and buffalo and elk that were wandering around the West had been reduced so severely that he wrote the government and said, you're going to have to help feed the Indians because it's cheaper to feed them than it is to fight them. And what was the government's response? (laughs) Not much. Not much. (laughs) Not much. What could they do? They would appoint an Indian agent, and the Indian agent would um, more than often cheat the Indians out of the food. Corruption, mm-hmm. governmental corruption. Terrible. Kit Carson was one of the best Indian agents ever. In fact, the Ute Museum here in Colorado, which is about 30 miles from my house, you go to that museum, and there's the, the Utes themselves. They have built this magnificent museum of their people and their, their, their group. And the first 
white man that they mention is Kit Carson, who helped them negotiate their treaty with the uh, President of the United States because the, the Indians were tricked by the part of the treaty that they signed. So Kit Carson was a remarkable person uh, in his in integrity and his loyalty and his uh, selfishness or non-selfishness. He, mm -hmm. he just was he was a very fascinating person. Of all the people back in those days, he stands out. And he he, he joined the uh, United States Army to fight the rebels in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was he was sworn into the Army. And after the Civil War was over, he wanted to quit. And the Army said, no, no, you can't quit. you got to help us come uh, fight the Indians. And he wrote some letters and said, no, I did not join the Army to fight Indians. And they wrote him back and said, no, you owe it to your nation. You have to do this because you're the best guy to do it. And so he was forced to go fight Indians like the Navajo and the Comanche. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, of course, this is made this is made for some bad blood between the Navajo Indians and Kit Carson. But once you look at the real details, you find out that he was very, very friendly and helpful to the Navajo Indians and to the Pueblo Indians and was not a murdering person like some people have said. They just say, one guy, some lady wrote a book one time, and she said Kit Carson wasn't happy until he killed ten Indians before breakfast. Hmm. Well, that's just about that's that's like saying George Patton, you know, cut the throats of a bunch of Nazis. Well, that's simply not true and false, and that really burns me up when they pick on Kit. Because by the way, I know Kit Carson's great grandson, and he's a really good guy. Well, you know, Kit Carson is variously described as an Indian fighter or um, a guide. Or a fighter in, you know, the Mexican-American War. He he married. Uh, he married an Arapaho woman, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He married yeah. two Indians before he married a very fine Spanish lady from Santa Fe. Of course, she was a lady, but she was only like about fourteen. But that's what they did back in those times. He became yeah. a Catholic so he could marry her. Her dad wouldn't let her marry him unless he became a Catholic. So well, he yeah. became a Catholic. Yeah, everything and he was young. a Mason, too. And a Mason as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Now, you, you feel that there's a, a connection, there may be a connection that uh, inspired Edgar S. Burroughs, the Kit Carson. Yes, I believe that. Uh, I've got some documents that uh, over the, my investigations over the years, I have found that uh, uh, the, the whole idea of Tarzan being out in the jungle and living on his own and with his own wits and his own ability to... Uh, find food and shelter matches what Kit Carson did. Uh, he did have uh, a great deal of, he had friends that he was out there with, but he was still forced to live in the wilds and to deal with the animals and deal with certain Indians. <clears throat> and uh, so that's kind of what Tarzan was doing. I mean, Tarzan would, you know, when he found a lost city in Africa, he didn't, he became friends with some of those people. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, there was always a bad guy because that's what, drama is in fiction. So. Yeah, you need, a, you need a protagonist and antagonist. Yeah, you need a protagonist. And, and, but Carson was good at that, and, and, and I'm just convinced that spirit, that in a spiritual way, Tarzan is a, is sort of a, not a reincarnation, but a, you know, a, an inspiration. A, a basis. Yeah. A basis. Well, <clears throat> you know, thinking about it, they're both strong characters. Um, 
they were able and skilled to survive and and excel in nature. They lived amongst uh, you know Aboriginal peoples as equals, not as exploiters. Right. Um, as a defender of them and the animals. Um, yes. I mean, linguistically, there are commonalities. As you said um, before, Tarzan, Carson, Carter, Carson of Venus. Um, the names. Edgar Rice Burroughs had a well. He had a very. Uh, he had a bit of a military background, and and um, but he worked in a ranch, and was very much uh, in, an enthusiast of outdoors life in the West too, wasn't he? Yes. That's so it's not much of a stretch to see the connection. Yeah, it's not. It's not a stretch. I'm, I'm the first guy to really kind of bring it up. And, of course, I've had a lot of Tarzan fans say, well, Kev, you just think that because you know a lot about the West. And I say, well, I think that because I've studied both. I know Tarzan inside and out, <clears throat> and I know the Western characters like <clears throat> Kit Carson inside and out, so I can see the similarities. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but not many people know the the detailed life story of, uh, of Carson like I do, and even Tarzan, but of course Tarzan is fiction and Carson was a real person. Well, you know, one thing you recommend I read that I just grabbed, Erwin um, Porges, his 800 and I think 16 page book in Edgar Rice Burroughs. I hadn't even known about this book and, and thanks to you I'm learning a lot and I'm really enjoying it. Um, for us to learn more about Kit Carson, um, what would you recommend we read to get started? Well, uh, I, the, there's about 150 books on Kit Carson. There's about five of them that are really, really excellent. And uh, I know the authors of uh, four of those books personally, and uh, I wouldn't want to go on national radio and say that I recommend one over the other. But when you give you give when I give you a list, it's obvious that uh, I'm going to have to pick one first. Oh, you can but, give me a couple. Hey, do them alphabetically out of parents. Well, well I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to read them all to you because okay. why not? I mean, Well, that's um, part of the pleasure of you speaking to someone who knows so much okay, well, and has read so much. We can learn something from you. Dear Old Kit by Harvey Carter is the first true biography of Kit Carson, which was uh, written with care and with extreme uh, sympathy and with Absolutely accurate information. Uh, it was published in 1968, the 100th anniversary of when Carson died. Uh, another book is Kit Carson and His Three Wives by Mark Simmons, who is a famous New Mexico historian. Um, and this is a kind of a little compact biography of Kit and his three wives. A more detailed book is Kit Carson and the Indians by Tom Dunlay. This is an extremely book, probably about 400 pages, but it's very interesting in that he delves into Kit Carson's interaction with Indians. Mm-hmm. And then there's Blood and Thunder by Hampton Sides, which won the best nonfiction book of 2006, I think it was. And they're still talking about making a television series or a miniseries or something based on uh, that book called Blood and Thunder, which I think is not a very good title. And so those are the four books. If you read those four books, you would know about 90% of everything you need to know about Kit Carson. And they're all in print. Well, thank you. That's very interesting. Well, has your wife arrived with lunch yet? Uh, Yes, she has. (laughs) 
<laughs> but it's fun talking to you because, you know, not many people ask me these kinds of questions, and so I'm, it's a pleasure to answer your questions. Well, I appreciate it very much. You know, By the way, I would like to say that uh, one of my assistant editors for Urban was a retired member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police called uh, John F. Roy, mm-hmm. and he really helped Urban uh, get along very well back there in the uh, 60s. And uh, he, he he's passed away now, but he was a wonderful gentleman and helped bring Urbdom into a higher level of uh, literary uh, abilities. He just he could write really well. I'm really an editor. I'm really not much of a writer. I'm an editor publisher. I'm the guy that says you send me you know a couple of stories or a couple of pages of some article, some idea that you have about this, and I'll publish it. That's what I do. But you know editing. I enjoy that because it's like building something, and I enjoy building things. You know, and you craft something exactly the way you'd like and put it together and, and release it. Um, how would you characterize editing versus writing? Yeah, it's uh, – yeah, well, the, 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 the guy that writes for me the most now is a man named Mike Taylor who's from mm-hmm. Branson, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's one of those people that just sent me an article about ten years ago and said, "Hey, how about this? I'm studying the, I'm studying all the Argosy magazines published in 1927, and here's a, here's an article that discusses all all uh, 52 issues, and this is perfect stuff for me." Mm-hmm. And uh, he would never publish it, I don't think. But uh, when I got it, I said, "This is just exactly what I want to do. I want to." set this guy's article up and let everybody else read it because he's done such a good job. And Mike is still writing for me right now. In fact, without Mike Taylor, there probably wouldn't be a pulpdom. Because, and he's very knowledgeable. He knows science fiction. He's a Burroughs fan. He knows, he just, he can write about things from a viewpoint in which uh, you really get the right impression. He doesn't have an agenda. And he's just, uh, he's just a pleasure to deal with. And I've never met him in person. We correspond. We don't even talk on the telephone. We email, and uh, we correspond. And uh, it's just it's just wonderful. I mean, uh, I, I I publish. I told Mike. I said, Mike, if you keep writing stuff, I guess I'll have to keep publishing. <laughs> well, you know, part of the uh, the pleasure of this podcast series is introducing people to new things, and and I think that that's a large part of, of what you've done that I think is special over the last, what is it, 53 years now. I mean, you've introduced so many people to, to something they wouldn't have known otherwise and, and helped us understand it better. Um, the, the pulp magazines and periodicals, I mean, that's where all the modern science fiction authors have come from, essentially. And, you know, one of the questions I always like to ask is, what are you reading? What do you recommend we read? Um, right now, discovering the Porges book, thanks to you, all these threads end up leading us to something else that we didn't know. And uh, that's, that's half the pleasure of it for me, for speaking with people like yourself. That and, and the fact that, you know, when you started out uh, Herbdom in 1960, what's interesting to me and what I always like to ask guests is, how do you begin? Because um, the fact you did something so enduring over the last uh, 52 years... Um, done it well and, and introduced all these topics to, to people and new generations. Um, you're a person who's done something, you know, something significant. And I, I really get a pleasure out of talking to you and, and learning more from you today. 
I think all that, of our well, listeners I think will. That's, that's what I've really enjoyed. I've enjoyed, I, I love introducing people to subjects and, and, and uh, historical characters that are worthy of uh, investigation, their life stories, uh, their adventures uh, are just fascinating, and I think to just concentrate on rock and roll music and uh, and dancing with stars is simply uh, it's just it's not as much fun as reading the uh, the stories of some of these people that lived and and accomplished maybe small things and or maybe great things, but who were just interesting people and who had integrity and who who loved life and. Uh, who who were just fascinating people, and it's just mm-hmm. more fun reading about them than listening to the Rolling Stones play uh, some song over and over and over. You know, after you've heard some of their songs about ten times, it's like <clears throat> time to go, time to go read another book. Well, yeah. How many times have we heard this is Led Zeppelin? How many times have we heard Stairway to Heaven? Yeah, I really, love, I, mean, I love it. But I mean, I love it. thousand times, just in the last ten years, is. I'm ready for the next thing. And it's pretty easy to ride down the street in your car and listen to music. Yeah. But when you get home, get yourself a good book, sit down at a, at a nice with a nice light and read a book. And I, there was a guy putting my carpet in just the other day, and I said, do you read books? And he goes, well, you know, every now and then. And so I just I really encouraged him. He was a young guy, and I said, man, mm-hmm. you need to read more books. You'll find a lot of fun there. Well, you discover new things. Yes. For the last... 30 years for me. I've known about you because you've been page three on every Edgar Rice Burroughs book I own. Visit Herbdom, learn more. (laughs) And it's been a pleasure getting to know more about you today. Well, thanks, Greg. I appreciate the call. Mike Taylor was very excited when I told him that somebody from Canada wanted to interview me for a a, a radio show, and his comment was, it's about time, Kaz. (laughs) I agree. So thank you. Sir, it's been a pleasure. Well, you got my number, and I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Greg. Have a good day.